Mark chapter 6, verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now we're jumping down to verse 30. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And when he had said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And when they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went to shore and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit in groups down on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and by fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and he, and, uh, said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and a fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we come asking not for a snake this morning. We come asking for bread. We pray that your word would nourish us uh, this morning, that we would have a time to be refreshed and satisfied in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the answer is always thanksgiving. It's always, always, always thanksgiving. What's the question? What is your favorite holiday? It's always thanksgiving. Who's with me? Okay, good. I'm not alone. Um, It's a time to rejoice in God's provision. To be genuinely, genuinely thankful for what God has done in your life. A time where all people are equal and valued around the table. There is laughter. There is joking. There is games, delicious food. And hopefully, if everything goes right, a nap. <laughs> and, and food plays such an important role in, in our lives. What th- This food, it communicates to us well-being. It communicates to us friendship, family, love, joy, relaxing. Biblically, though, there is one feast, there is one meal that is celebrated that has none of this. It doesn't embody any of that. 
Uh, some of you may think, are, Thomas, are you referencing this feeding of the 5,000 that we're looking at here today? Well, no, I'm not. Well, we're going to get there, but I'm not starting there. Uh, I'm referencing another meal. I want to rewind to look at a meal that was very lean and particularly quick and no time for relaxing. Uh, this is the Passover meal that we see in the book of Exodus, isn't it? Uh, you, you know the Passover story from the scenes of Exodus, but let me just remind you uh, via the kids story and song as it goes, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go, you know, and then of course, Bob Marley sings Exodus movement of Ja people. And what we see in those interesting scenes back in Exodus is Pharaoh, this king had grown to become so cruel. He enslaved God's people. They longed to escape from his grip. Uh, so when God finally, finally through the 10 plagues had brought about leading them out, there was a particular meal that God said, before you leave this land, I want you to eat this particular meal. And it's to be eaten rather unlike our Thanksgiving meal. It was to be eaten slow. It was not to be eaten slowly. It was not to be eaten like we do where you have 10 options before you. You have appetizers and then you have all this stuff to choose from and then followed by numerous desserts to pile on afterwards. No, no, no. This was to be simple. The recipe was fire roasted lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter greens. It was quick and it was simple because they were headed out of slavery. The point was, get ready, you're about to go. And during this meal, a few items are mentioned. A few items that we're also going to see today in our passage. Being that this section of Mark circles around food, provision, feasting, and the possibility of famine, I have titled each of these uh, sections that we're covering with this in mind. So, a fourfold outline is feast or famine, feast with the beast, the king's feast, and lastly, we'll look at the famine of understanding. So first, the feast or famine. I began by highlighting for us a pattern that we're going to see and continue to see in the Gospel of Mark is this pattern of rejection followed by kingdom expansion. More rejection followed by kingdom expansion. It's the exact same thing that we as a church find ourselves in right now. You and I, rejection, but God is at work and so we see kingdom expansion. The disciples have exhibited some success so far in the book of Mark. More often, we find they fail. Uh, they, they don't get it. They fail to comprehend. They fail to understand. But here we, we do get at, in, these, in this opening uh, section here, the disciples seem to have a little bit of success. We read earlier that Jesus sends out the 12, but he sends them out into the towns and villages in groups of two, right? Um, and, we, and we see in this Section, it, this whole passage re, is relying heavily upon themes and ideas from the Old Testament, uh, especially in the Exodus, as I've already brought out. But the significance of the two in the Old Testament is important. Why two? Because you always needed two or three to establish a credible witness. Um, and so these disciples are to go about essentially proclaiming the kingdom of God as a witness of what God has done through Christ in their midst. And note the shorthand that we hear that they are calling people to repent. Uh, they are, even as you and I are, we are to call uh, people to repent and echo Jesus's words in the opening of this book where he says in Mark chapter one, the time is fulfilled. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And being that they, they have two people as they go to this town or this village, that they have two that they're able to stand as credible witnesses to say, here is the good news of what we have seen in Jesus Christ. But also, it's, it, it's, the two are there in case of judgment. If the people refuse to take them in, if the people refuse to listen, there's two to stand and say, we brought the gospel to them and they refused to believe. And so there is judgment. Where, and, and the question is, where does this come from? James Edwards puts it this way. He says, to shake off the dust off your feet when you leave, it, it, it is as though a, it's a testimony against them. It is a searing indictment since the Jews traveling outside of Palestine were actually required to shake themselves free of dust when they were returning home, lest they pollute the land of Israel with dust from their enemies outside the country. Uh, th- this is a bit like saying, hey, pal, don't let the door hit you on the way out. It, it, it's a it's a form of, of judgment on them. And so the disciples go off and they do just as they have been instructed. And key to this is the issue of provision. Should they go out with a backpack full of everything that they can to guarantee their success when they're out there on the on their way? Jesus says, no, 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 no. Take the bare minimum. Why? Because if they take the bare minimum, this will help them see that the success that they will have will only be if the Lord provides. It will either be feast or famine. They could be naysayed by many, just as Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, or they could find mixed success and it would highlight God's provision for them. It would highlight that it was not their effort. It was God working in to bro- proclaim and bring the kingdom. And did you recall these interesting four items that are, are used? Um, there is a shirt. There's a belt. There's a staff and sandals. All of these are mentioned. These are the same items that are mentioned when the Israelites were called to, to use in the Exodus scene with the Passover meal. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, it says, in this manner you shall eat. So in this manner you shall eat, catch this, with your belt fastened, with sandals on your feet, and with the staff in hand. And you shall eat this meal in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Why is this? What's the connection here? Is is this just a, a coincidence? Well, I think because God, as he has done in the past, he was again about to act in space-time history to bring about salvation. What was Exodus all about? Salvation was coming. Get ready. What are the disciples going out and proclaiming? Get ready. Salvation is coming. And even as they do this, they're, they're, he was about to bring about the, the ultimate salvation, not just from a political tyrant, but from sin and death itself. So the 12 tribes of Israel in Exodus, they're sent out of Egypt and they're called to put their utter trust in God. So to hear Jesus sending out his 12 with very little in hand are to go out in proclaiming the way of salvation with very little in hand and are to have utter trust in God. Here's a question for you. Ask yourself, what has changed for us? I would argue not much. I would argue nothing. Friends, church on the mountain, don't you see that God is sending you? Don't you see that 
Jesus the King, with full authority, says to you, Go, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey me. And you, you who say, Thomas, <laughs> Thomas, I don't have the means. Um, I have, I have so little. I have little education. I have little understanding. I have few resources. How can I actually have an impact for the kingdom? We, we see here these disciples who they have little education. They, they don't, they don't even understand and they have almost no resources. And so if you think to yourself, you know, Thomas, I'm too old for this. I'm too old. People younger than me are not going to want to hear what I have to say. If I was 10 years younger, Thomas, well, then maybe, sure. Or maybe you're saying, hey, if I was just 10 years older, then people would respect me. They would hear me. If I was just 10 years older, then sure, Thomas. Or you say, I don't know enough apologetics, or I fumble with my words, or perhaps you think I'm a nobody. We ask you, who sent you? Who sent you? Did, did man send you? Because if man sent you, and you don't have all the man-centered means of proclaiming this kingdom, well then sure, of course it'll fail. But friends, if God sent you, if God sent you, it will not fail. It will be successful. Isn't that the picture that we get here? I don't care if you're even housebound. If you're housebound, do you have a phone? Do you have a pen and paper? Do you have an email address? Think of even just the most simplistic ways that you could have a kingdom impact. You could do tremendous good for the kingdom of God. Well, we see first here this feast or famine with the apostles, with the 12 being sent out. And now we're going to enter in what at first may, at first glimpse might just seem like a completely random interlude. This is where we're looking at feast with the beast. Um, you know how this goes. You're watching a good movie and you are hooked. This movie's pulled you in. And sometimes right in the middle of this very important scene in the movie, there'll be these white little letters that pop up and say, five years earlier or 10 months ago. And then all of a sudden you're taken from the current timeline and you're pulled out and you get an entire backstory that's going to happen. This entire backstory then helps you understand the current time frame. So that when you leave the two years ago and come back to the current time frame, all of a sudden, everything clicks into place. Things begin to make sense to you. And that is what we see Mark doing here. This morning, what we see with the disciples was provision from God as they trusted in him and did not fear whom they encountered. Now we will see a puppet king who will fear his own invited guests. So I'm going to ask you to read with me at verses 14 through 20 to catch this. So here's this interlude that's going on. Now, King Herod, he heard of it. Heard of what? He heard of the success of the 12 apostles sent out. So King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miracle powers at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Uh, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, 
to, to briefly remind you of what's going on here in this scene, this is Herod, not Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great who had conquered much of the land and was the same Herod who tried to put Jesus to death by, by wiping out all the, those males of two and under? Okay, this is not that Herod. This, that's his father. That Herod, Herod the Great had four sons named Herod. <laughs> Talk about an egomaniac. And he, he names what, this one Herod Antipas. And this Herod Antipas is then not as great of a king as his father was. He only rules over a fourth of the land. Uh, so he has, he, he's kind of a, a shadow king, a puppet king, really. And even as he's ruling, he, he has the Romans who've invaded. And so he needs to appease them. And so with that background in mind, this whole sending out of the 12 had actually created a stir. Herod heard the reports. People must have been repenting. Uh, we read that people were being healed. Many demons had been cast out. And perhaps he is uh, then like this prophet or Elijah of the Old Testament. But Herod says no in reference to Jesus. He is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now it's interesting for, G, for, for Herod to say that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead, this doesn't add up. If you just know a little bit of the history here, John the Baptist and Jesus were alive at the same time. So if John the Baptist is dead, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden Jesus is John the Baptist. It doesn't follow. But for some reason in the king's mind, he's, he's got himself in this thinking because he knew what kind of man John was. And, and, and what happens, this leads Mark to give us the backstory of the feast that occurred. How was it that John the Baptist anyway was killed? Well, John the Baptist informed Herodias that her marriage to Herod was unbiblical. It, 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 this, friends, would have been a total scandal. Um, it, it was unbiblical. It was a scandal. And being that Herodias didn't like the message that John the Baptist had told her, she wanted him to be, uh, you know, not only just put in jail, she wanted his head to be on the chopping block a long time ago. Now, ironically, the king... Uh, Herod knew John the Baptist was a righteous man and he feared doing anything to him. And so his life was preserved. But then we are told of an opportune moment that came for Herodias to carry out her evil plan. This is where we'll conclude this sandwich section in the middle here. If you'll read with me at verses 21 through 29, we see what happens here. An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and she danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And so she went out and she said to her mother, uh, for, for what shall I ask? And she said, huh, here we go, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And when he went and, behead, and, he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Okay, so this is all part of that two years earlier, this backstory that's going on. Herodias' daughter, this gal, her daughter, whom we hear from Josephus, uh, he tells us that her name is Salome. Uh, she comes in 
She dances for the king and the nobles there in attendance. Now, friends, you have to understand, you can imagine with a drunken party like this is, it's probably seductive in nature. We don't, we can't prove it by the text, but it probably was seductive. Uh, this was probably not a cute little Salome coming in doing tap dance or ballet. Um, and so the king foolishly uh, makes an offer to the girl saying, uh, hey, what would you like? What would you like? You, you just tell me the prize. It's yours. And she goes out and consults with her mother. And she says, I'd like John the Baptist's head. Uh, this king, this, this puppet king then fears his whole guess and their opinion of him. And so he goes through with the request. Now, I just want you for just a second, just pretend you're there. Pretend you, you show up to this feast. Uh, picture yourself self with the feast with the beast. This supposed king, he invites you, you arrive, there's lavish food, everything seems great, but then you see a mother who uses her daughter for her own means. You find out these lewd acts are ensuing, and you witness the king who's now caught up in a scandal. Rather than doing what is right, he comes off as a man pleaser who wants to come across just as tough and as big and as bold and as bad as his father was. But by the time this whole party ends, a righteous man's head ends up on a platter, while a coward king looks like a fool. I mean, you talk about a buzzkill. And I think right here, the scene that John wants you and I to see, I I think he wants us to have this ugly scene painted for us so that we get a picture of what the king of this world has to offer us. What the ruler of this world would say here, here's what my kingdom is like. Um, if this king offers us the, his feast, what does it come with? If you want this king's feast of this world, it comes with this. It comes with a man-centered means of sensuality. It comes with power grabs. It's a kingdom that thrives under the fear of man rather than the fear of God. It's a kingdom. We're at the end of it. The righteous end up with their head on a platter. I think that's the picture we need to see. I don't want to go far down this road, but just take a look around globally right now. (laughs) Take a look around at the kings of our day. I I, I think we get a glimpse of this when we look at many of our world leaders. We look around and we say, where is there a good ruler? All of our kings and our leaders, they're caught up in scandals. Uh, It's rare to find a good leader. Where is there a feast that you could go to? Uh, where is there a feast that is a feast of righteousness, where righteousness rules and reigns? Where is there a feast where the king is good, where no one goes hungry, where no one leaves with their head missing, where the king is supposed to be? And friends, you have to understand, the kings in Israel were always supposed to be shepherds. Their role was to care for the people. Where is there a king who's a good shepherd to his sheep who care for them? And so we look now and we find the king's feast. And so we go to this next section. We're now back. We had this 12 sent out with success, mixed results, but success. We have the backstory about King Herod. And now we're back at the current timeline here where we find this good shepherd at work. We saw the the 12 sent out and now they're with Jesus. They're in a boat. Many spot them and they're going, ah, there's Jesus. He's in the boat. We see where he's going. So people are coming from the town. People are coming from the villages. They're trying to get ahead, figuring out where Jesus will land from the sea so that they can connect up with him. And then we read this key line. It's so key. See verse 34. 
When he, meaning Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Here we see the heart of a good king, friends, the heart of a good shepherd, to feed them the truth come from God. And we then see that they hang around to listen to Jesus' teaching, and now they've grown very hungry. They're wondering about getting food for everyone. It seems like a crazy amount of food needs to be purchased. It's a half year's wage. And now Jesus tells them something that if they had truly caught who he was, if these disciples had been paying any attention, if they'd really asked themselves, who is this Jesus? When he says, you give them something to eat. uh, How can we? Well, how much food do you have? Five loaves and two fish. They should have already known. Friends, they should have caught where he's going here. And we see Jesus, he gives thanks, and then they are all fed here at this king's feast. Here, just like a Thanksgiving meal, everyone is full. Do you realize in biblical times, it was very rare. Perhaps maybe at weddings, there was an opportunity for people to be fully fed and to be so full, they go, oh, I'm stuffed, no more. Um, that, that's a real a real possibility that there was, it was rare for people to be so full that they were just stuffed. But what do we see here with Jesus? They are full. Everyone was satisfied. Everyone. Who's hungry here? No one. How many people are fed here? Well, we hear of 5,000 men. Guesstimates are somewhere between seven, eight, nine, ten thousand people are fed here at this time. So what's the point? The point is that Jesus provides with little. He provides with little. He only needs a little and he can do, take care of it all. You, this is the, this is how it began with the 12 that were sent out. You go out with little, I will provide. You feed the people with little, I will provide. For those in my kingdom, they will be blessed. You will be satisfied. Why? Because he is the good shepherd. And our good shepherd wants us. He wants you and I. He, he wants us to see that he will provide with little. We say, Lord, our building's not big enough. We say, Lord, we don't have enough training. Lord, we don't, we are not the most eloquent. We don't have enough leaders. Lord, we don't have the resources. We don't have the number of people. Well, God says to you this morning, I will provide. He loves to take our feeble resources and multiply the impact of them. And watching him work, we need to understand he is who he is. If you look into his eyes, you will see who is this Jesus? He is who he is. This is why what happened last night right here in this room was so important. We gathered together for a night of prayer. And it was so important because it was a time where we just sat back and admitted that we don't really have much. We sat back and we, we, we said, Lord, we don't have enough. We need you to intervene. We need you to take our five loaves and two measly fish And we need everybody here in this body to be satisfied in Christ. You know, when God does some of the best work in my life, do you know when I walk away the most satisfied? Sunday mornings are oftentimes, but more often than not, on a Saturday night of prayer, I walk away full. I mean, I am full. I just say, Lord, take me home right now. Let's go. Um, and, And here with these 12 baskets left over, it's, it's interesting. Um, you, you wonder why the 12 baskets left over? Everybody's full. Why did, wasn't, why didn't God just provide just enough so that you go, aha, it had to be him. Why the leftovers? Well, 
Of course, there are 12 apostles, and of course, the 12 apostles have one basket per person. So I think there is a little quick lesson in this that we can say for sure. The the leftovers are teaching the disciples that God can take the little and provide plenty. He can overabundantly provide. But I think there's something else going on here. Uh, Spiritually speaking, I think that there is more bread to feed others who are hungry. Uh, Don't don't you see that, sure, there was the 5,000, 10,000 there. But there are other people who needed to be fed. And it won't be very long before these 12 are sent out across the globe to feed those who don't know the truth and to give it to them. And yet, here it is. They've seen Jesus provide for them as they went out with very little, with staff in hand and belt and sandals. And then these 12 look at Jesus providing a meal for 10,000 people. They still don't get it. So now we look at the famine. Our last piece here of understanding, the famine of understanding, verses 45, and uh, we'll uh, pause here at 52. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, and he dismissed the crowd. Um, and, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And when he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he meant to pass by them. And and when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out uh, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were uh, utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Just a few comments as we look at this section here. Do you see the humor in this? Just a slight humor. Here they are. Jesus is watching the boat. Jesus is watching them struggle. They maybe have been stuck out. They're tired. They're exhausted. The wind is howling. And Jesus, acting as while they're trying to go along the sea, he's just acting like, I'm just going to walk on by, you know. <laughs> and, and you just think, Clearly, he's got a little bit of a sense of humor. Um, but, but I think something else is also going on. This idea of passing by, God passing by, it's found in a key passage in the Exodus. It's found in Exodus 33, uh, where, where we find uh, Moses says, God, I want to know what's really you. Is this really you? I want to see your glory. And what does God do? He says, okay, Moses. I'll show you my glory. Well, I can't quite show you. I'll put you in this crevice, in this crack in the rock. I'll put you in the cleft. And while you're in there, I'm going to put my hands over your eyes so that my glory doesn't consume you and burn you. And I will pass by you so you can see my glory. And then I'll let you see the back side of me. Right? And I think here there's a little play where these disciples are not getting who this is. And he intends to walk on water and pass by so they can see the glory of this one whom is in their midst. And yet they're seeing it and they still don't see this ghost theme is interesting. They say it's a ghost, which is kind of ironic because sadly at the feast with the beast, what were the people saying there about Jesus? They were saying, Oh, he is a ghost, right? So it's okay when those out there say Jesus is a ghost, but when your own 12, your inner 12 say you're a ghost, it's a bit ironic. He's not friends. He is the true King. He is God. He is, as he says here, 
ego eimi, the Greek word when he says, it is I, is I, I don't want to push this, but it is I am. Here in full glory, walking on the sea, he says, don't be afraid, I am, it's me. And, and, and I couldn't help but think of the Gospel of John where Philip says, Lord, Lord, just show us the Father. Just show us the Father. It'll be enough. If we could just see the Father, then we'll believe. Everything we'll believe. And Jesus, in this brilliant moment, he says, you're, you're looking at him. How, how long have I been with you and you don't know? It's me. I am. And we see this frustrating line in, in verse 52, where they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And then, even though the disciples still don't recognize him, we read, ironically, look at verses 53 and 54. When they had crossed over, they had come to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, here's interesting. The disciples don't get it, but listen, the people immediately recognized him. (laughs) The people saw him and recognized him. They knew it was him. So put this all together with me. If you've been sleeping this morning, just, I know this is a lot. We've been going back and forth. There's a lot of scenes here. I'm putting this all together in one bowl, hopefully, so you can see the flow. So catch this. Jesus, he teaches the 12 to head out proclaiming repentance in a healing kingdom, a kingdom of rescue and salvation. They, like the Israelites in in Egypt, in Exodus, they eat only what is before them, and they do so with the staff in hand and no extra provisions. Meanwhile, there's a puppet king who is filled with pride, who is afraid and fearful. Just like Pharaoh of Egypt, he responds with foolish, ridiculous actions. And then we see God provide in the wilderness, just like With those in the Exodus, he takes his people to the wilderness and feeds them, provides manna for them. So too, we see here, Jesus takes the 5,000, the 10,000 and feeds them, provides food for them. And they're provided for. And further, we see a God whose people led by Moses back in Exodus. What do do they do to get escape and enter into salvation? They see the leader, Moses, walking through the sea to lead them to salvation. So to hear Jesus leading these disciples, we see him walking on the sea and he doesn't drown just like Moses, but he lives. Now, sure, Moses went through the sea. But friends, Jesus is greater than Moses. So he walks on top of the sea and leads his people to salvation. What's the problem? They don't get it. They don't get it. They see all these things before them. And like you, some of you here in the past, and hopefully hopefully now you've come and you say, I see. They're staring at Jesus. They're looking at him. And who is it that they're hearing? Who is it that they're following? Who is it that they're watching? This isn't just Jesus, the man. This isn't just Jesus, the carpenter. This is Jesus who is truly man, truly God. And here in some simple ways, I couldn't help but think of this Jesus for these disciples. He's so much like a, a, a Clark Kent in Superman. Um, he, people just, they see him, but they don't really see him. You, you, you know how this goes from the, especially from the Christopher Reeves movies, Clark Kent you know, he's working at this as this news reporter when his love, Lois Lane, she's there up in the office. They're up in this, up in the tower there. They're in their office and things are going on in the office up in this tower. 
And she gets the newspaper, which has Superman on the front cover. And she's holding it up, and she's kind of doing this number on the front cover, and she's looking over at Clark Kent, and she goes, huh. So she gets a Sharpie out, and she puts over on Superman on the, on the newspaper. She colors glasses like he, Clark Kent has, and she sees, well, he's got this like news reporter, you know, the classic news reporter hat. And so he, he, she draws this line with the, with the hat on, and then it clicks. It's him. It's him. And so she goes up to Clark, and she says, I know it's you. I know it's you. You're Superman. And you could see it in his eyes. He's kind of like doing this number, trying to play. It's not really me. And she says, I know it's you so much so that I'm going to test my theory right here. And so she, she opens up the window of the 10, of the 10 story tower there. And she jumps out going, what Superman will do here is he's going to show up. He's going to swoop down and stop me before I splat on the pavement. Now, what happens? Clark Kent quickly dashes to the window. He looks down. He assesses the entire situation in half a nanosecond. He goes all the way down to the street level. He pulls out this awning so that when she comes down, she's going to hit this awning. And then she bounces on the awning and she lands on a fruit cart in the street. So, And then he goes all the way back up and then he's like leaning out the window. So that when she hits the awning and hit and bounces on the food cart, she's bruised. And confused because she looks up and she goes, I thought, I thought he was going to swoop down. Is he really? I thought I saw him. I thought it was him. Friends, what should she have done? She should have said, I know what you did. (laughs) I know what you did, you sneaker. You came down and you pulled out the awning. I know exactly what you did. And then you just went back up to the top, looking down, acting like what happened? You know, that's what should have happened. She should have said, I know it's you. Here the disciples don't see it, but they will. And there's coming a time where they're going to look Jesus in the eyes and they say, Jesus, it is you. You are God. You can do all these things. And you, friends, this morning with eyes of faith, you can look and recognize Jesus. He is the sent son. He is the king. He is the provider. He is God, the glorious one, clothed in humanity. And yes, he is the good shepherd who has his people when he's feeding the 5,000. What does the good shepherd do? He has them, and you'll read it right there in, in Mark. It says, he had them lie down in the green grass because he is the good shepherd who leads his people to the food. I'd say the the main point of this passage is God is ascending God who sent out his disciples through times of want and plenty, times of fear, times of peace, and he provides as the great king of a far, far better feast. Don't you want this king as your king? Would you pray with me? Father, we we thank you. Uh, we thank you that in Christ we have a king who is not here to abuse us, king who's not here to take advantage of us, a king who's not here uh, at the devastation of others, but is here to bring others out of a state of desperation into the green grass where they are full and satisfied. Uh, Would you do that with those here who long for that all the more? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.